first episode. I am Rinya and this is Sophia and you're listening to the Midwife Podcast and today we have a really lovely guest. She's a midwife. She works in the Twin Cities. Um, Sophia, do you want to tell us a little more about how you know this midwife? Yeah, so Emmy is a really dear friend of mine and a mentor to me. I actually grew up with her kids and so she's kind of been my first you know, window into the birth world. I'm, mm. I recall hanging out with her kids when they were teenagers, well, we were all teenagers. And as teenagers do, we were staying up quite late and Emmy got home from a birth at that point. And she took something out of her bag and it was like, and her, her friend, her, <laughs> her children were like, okay, like, let's get out of here, like, and I was like, what's it, what's in there, what's in there, and she's like, oh, it's a placenta, and they're like, yeah, let's leave, like, it's gross, <laughs> and I was like, no, I want to see, uh, like, I want to see the placenta, placentas are the coolest, I know, <laughs> and I don't, for some reason, I didn't see the placenta at that point in time, um, but Emmy has allowed me, like, to shadow her midwifery practice, and mm. so I've spent several months, um, working with her and Claire, and I, she was the first midwife to show me a placenta. Mm. <laughs> and I went to my first, first birth with Emmy and wow. um, her midwifery partner, Claire. So it's my honor and pleasure to have her as a guest on our show. And we're so looking forward to our sharing, with the, sharing this conversation with you. So stay tuned. Our first guest on the Midwifery Podcast is Emmy Corbet. Emmy is a certified professional midwife, licensed by the Board of Medical Practice in Minnesota. Practicing as a primary midwife since 2006, she often works in partnership with other midwives. Her midwifery practice is called Trillium Midwifery Care, serving home birth families in Minneapolis and St. Paul metro area. Emmy knew she wanted to be a midwife after the birth of her first, first child in 1991. Attending a Dona birth doula training by Gail Tully deepened her understanding of the professional and lifestyle of birth work while figuring out her path to midwifery, CP CNM versus CPM, all the while raising her own young children. There are several routes to becoming a CPM. 
which we'll talk about later in the podcast. Emmy chose to become a CPM through the PEP process, Portfolio Evaluation Process. As part of this extensive certification um, process, she attended classes at the farm in Tennessee and has also worked in a high volume of birth centers in the Philippines. Um, We welcome Emmy to the Midwifery Podcast and look forward to hearing her process to becoming a home birth midwife and also stories of her experience as a midwife. So welcome, Emmy. Thanks for having me, Sophie and Rinya. It's great to be here. Wonderful. So let's just get started and talk a little bit about how you chose to become a midwife. Yeah. Well, I had my first baby in 1991. Um, Before that, I was a teacher and went to school to become a teacher, and and I taught for several years in a foreign country and um, became pregnant in Bogota, Colombia, and spent about six months of my pregnancy seeing an obstetrician because there wasn't a lot of choice. I, you know, was funneled into an English-speaking obstetrician who was actually trained in Canada, and it was an ultrasound at every visit. It was pretty medical, but I didn't know anything different. I didn't really know about home birth for sure. I had a vague recollection that there were midwives that attended births, but that wasn't a choice for me in Bogota. Um, As soon as I moved to Minnesota, I was about between six and seven months pregnant. My sister-in-law, who is a pediatrician in the Twin Cities, said, you need to go see a midwife. And she gave me the card for her midwifery practice that she saw for her kids. So I became um, a client of them, and I only had a short period of time left in my pregnancy, and um, just fell in love with the standard of care that midwifery offers. It was so different than the obstetricians um, that I was seeing in Bogota. Um, I didn't go into that pregnancy really thinking much about what kind of birth I wanted, although once I was getting midwifery care, it became pretty obvious that I wanted a natural birth, I wanted a holistic birth, I wanted to avoid a C-section. This was in 1991, so kind of before the days of doulas attending births, um, I didn't know what a doula was. I did intuitively invite a friend to be with me. So I knew that I wanted women close to me. Um, And um, I think my birth plan was written on a napkin from a restaurant and it said that I wanted immediate skin to skin with my baby and I didn't want medication. That was, you know, I sort of knew I could do that. Um, that was the extent of my birth plan. And I had a fantastic birth. I, I loved my birth. Um, and after that, I, I started thinking, oh my gosh, <laughs> how can I do this job that that midwife was providing me? Why were those the two things that you chose to have on your birth plan? Well, I knew that um, once, I, once I got to the States and had access to a library of English-speaking you know, textbooks and books about childbirth and birth, Michelle O'Dont and Lamaze, and then it just became so, it was just so natural for me to want that. Um, You know, when I thought about my mother's births and the women in my family, they were pretty medical births, but I knew that women did this. I also had a boyfriend in high school whose sister had a midwife in Toronto, and she had a natural birth. And I remember, and she breastfed her baby, and I was the girlfriend of the brother. And so I was around when she was visiting with her breastfeeding baby. And those, those were really 
my first exposure to very young children and sort of natural parenting and breastfeeding. Um, and so, yeah, when I had access to, so when I lived in Bogota, I, you know, this was pre-internet. I didn't have, <laughs> I didn't have Google. Um, you know, there were very few English textbooks or any sort of resources for me as, and I wasn't a, a fluent Spanish speaker, even though I lived there. Um, so it wasn't until late in my pregnancy when I moved to Minnesota that I was like, oh my God, there's a whole section in the library of birth books and um, was really drawn to um, birth into being and, you know, some of those classics. Um, so, anyway. so it sounded like you really educated yourself and with that education, I did. really chose Right, and track. I also, you know, was sort of like plunked into this really fantastic midwifery practice. Um, of, you know, I remember my midwife, like, I just love her. She's moved out of the state now, and I only saw her a few times because it was a big practice, and so I saw a few different midwives, but she was the one that I really connected with, and she happened to be the one on call when, you know, I went into labor. So I felt lucky that she attended my birth. So, yeah, um, I knew that that's what I wanted, and, and I, I think I was fortunate. I had a pretty straightforward first labor, unlike many women. Um, it was, you know, pretty short as far as labors go, and very straightforward. Um, so there really wasn't time for interventions. I think if I had had a long prodromal labor or a complicated posterior baby, I would have been, it would have been a very different story, obviously. Every birth story is so unique. How did you become a midwife? Well, so my first baby was born in early 91, and then a little bit later that year, um, a neighbor of mine had asked me, she had heard, she was pregnant with her second baby, and um, her first had been a C-section. So it was an induction. It was a long, long labor that ended in, you know, fetal distress or intolerance of labor, um, or non-progressing, I can't remember exactly. So her second baby was, going to be a VBAC and um, she had the same midwifery group and she I think she just gained a lot of confidence by listening to my birth story because it was so straightforward and I loved talking about my birth because it was so amazing and so she asked me long before we knew the word doula in our community um, if I would attend her birth and she wanted some photographs she had a video camera in those days that was a big deal and she asked me if I would do those things but just be you know her companion. Her husband was terrified because the first birth had ended so traumatically for everybody. And so I attended her birth and it was long and it was crazy. And so for me, even though I had these this inkling that I loved that role of a midwife when I was giving birth, actually witnessing the work of a midwife and witnessing a woman laboring was absolutely so transformative. As motherhood is, when you become a mother, <clears throat> witnessing birth for me was unbelievable. I mean, I think I was there for 18 hours and time stopped. Like I didn't get hungry, I didn't get tired. Like it was just, I was in this very ethereal place of witnessing the ultimate power of a woman's body. And it was incredible. And she had a, she had a vaginal birth and it was just, like the most amazing thing to witness. It brought me to my knees. And I came home and I was still nursing my own young baby and <laughs> I remember Paul waking me up, or I woke him up in the middle of the night and I had Noah and I was nursing him because my breasts were full of milk and I just sort of said, 
I'm going to be a midwife one day. <laughs> and I, I was almost afraid to verbalize it because it meant like such a major switch from what I had been doing, which was you know, I'd gone to school for five years to be a teacher. And I was having babies and nursing babies. And I was like, how do I completely turn this ship around and do something completely different? And it took me a long time to do that, but I did. And I don't regret it one bit. Yeah. So, Can you talk about why it was so satisfying that... The, like her having a VBAC mm -hmm. was, you know, particularly empowering and yeah. maybe explain a little bit about what a VBAC is. So a VBAC stands for vaginal birth after cesarean and currently in our country, it was different in the early 90s when my friend had a C-section. I think the C-section rate at that time may have been 20%, but now it's well above 30%. So if you imagine you're a young woman and maybe you're not thinking about having kids right now, maybe you're in college or you're in high school, but one day you might be in the position of wanting to become a mother or wanting to become a parent in some way. And if you do that by biologically carrying your own baby, you're going to have to birth that baby. And how you birth is really important. Um, it's not to say that a surgery and a C-section is a bad thing because we know that they're life-saving and it's a wonderful procedure that has saved millions of women and babies. But it also is a really overused procedure. Um, so um, my friend who had had her first birth by C-section, um, you know, I wasn't present for that labor, so I don't know exactly, and this was long before I knew much about birth, but she knew she wanted to have many kids in her life. She went on and had four kids, but um, at the time, you know, when you have one C-section, you know, Previous to that, in the 70s and 80s, um, you know, if you had one C-section, you were pretty much forced into having a second C-section and then maybe a third or a fourth or a fifth. And the risks to the mother increase with every subsequent surgery. It's major abdominal surgery. And so she knew that she wanted to have more kids and she really wanted to birth vaginally. And so she, you know, she sort of stacked the deck in her favor of having a vaginal birth. So she chose midwives. She had... A companion there she you know declined induction when she was a little past her due date um, you know she was in in good shape and she you know she had a really patient and loving provider who you know obviously was monitoring her for the safety concerns um, of any birth and she birthed triumphantly so mm -hmm. why did you decide to become a home birth midwife yeah so early in my attending births um, so when I attended my friend's birth, she was my neighbor, she lived across the alley. I had had my own baby, then I attended my friend's birth, and then there was someone in my playgroup, I attended that birth, and then there was another friend who had a baby. So over the course of like, I don't know, five or six years, I attended, you know, maybe half a dozen births. It wasn't many, but it was enough that it was feeding my passion. And I think I sort of became known in my little circle of sort of like, well, ask Emmy, because she'll... She'll, she'll come to your birth. Like, she'll take photos or she'll help you. And we really, I didn't know what a doula was. I, didn't, I did not have that word in my vocabulary, although Dona was up and running in its infancy in the early 90s. It just hadn't really hit the Twin Cities in my world. Um, so anyway, I, when I decided I was, you know, going to be a midwife, I struggled. You know, do I, do I go back to nursing school? Do I go to school and do all those prereqs and then spend three, four years in nursing school and then another two or three in midwifery school. And my husband was in a master's and then a PhD program. We had three little kids. Like it just, the thought of <laughs> actually going back to school, 
um, was a little daunting, um, but I started doing some of the prereqs. I did anatomy and physiology and a chemistry class. And um, so, er, so then in 2000, I did my doula training with Gail Tully and still kind of grappling with that decision. Do I? And I knew Gail was a home birth midwife. And one of the first births that I attended sort of officially as a doula was, it wasn't the first birth, one of the first births was one of her clients. Um, this woman, she lived in Powderhorn, and she was having her second baby. And so I knew enough about birth thinking, oh, second baby, it'll be quick, it'll be fun, Gail will be the midwife, it'll just be awesome. And it turns out that it was super long and hard. Um, she went into labor on a Friday night on my husband's birthday. I dropped our date like a hot potato and <laughs> rushed off to the birth. Um, and I think I was there till Monday morning. And she gave birth to an 11 pound, 11 ounce baby, vaginally. And I think I knew enough about birth. I didn't know a whole lot. I certainly was wide-eyed and in wonder um, that whole long weekend that if she had been in a hospital, she for sure would have had a surgery for that big baby. And as it turned out, she gave birth vaginally and pretty triumphantly. And it was obviously a big baby, and he was posterior and asynclitic, and, you know, he just sort of had all the cards stacked in his favor of not coming out vaginally. But he had um, a very skilled mil midwife, Gail Tully. He had, she had an assistant with her that was also equally skilled. Um, a, a friend came and provided support for the birth team, made food. Her partner was fantastic. Um, I was a pretty brand new doula, but you know, <laughs> I lended a hand when I could. Um, and so that, that birth really cemented in my mind that there was a really different way women could birth with continuous support from a care provider as opposed to shifts and um, patience and skill that's not available in the hospital. Um, it's, it's more available now, I feel like, you know, almost 20 years later, but at the time, you know, using homeopathy and herbs and having a chiropractor come in the middle of labor to do adjustments and having a cranial sacral therapist come and give the mother some support and relief and open her sacrum, like that was not common in hospital world. And it still isn't, you know, you have to fight pretty hard for those things in a hospital, but you know, you can get them. But this woman had, you know, she labored long and hard, but she did it. And, you know, pretty triumphantly had a very big baby. <laughs> is home birth safe? Yeah, it is. Um, and I'm just going to refer to my notes here because there's so many great studies. So if you just Google, you know, is home birth safe, you'll come across a lot of studies that are not well done and not well constructed studies that will tell you that there's higher infant mortality and higher maternal mortality. But the good studies, in my mind, um, really do illustrate that home birth is very safe. And one of the best ones was done by um, the, the Midwife Association of North America, MANA. Um, it's a study that was, it's called Outcomes of Care for 16,984 Planned Home Births in the United States. And again, it was, it was um, a study compiled by MANA, the Midwife Association of North America. 
So this study adds to the large growing body of research that has found that planned birth with a midwife is not only safe for babies and mothers with low-risk pregnancies, but results in health and cost benefits that reach far beyond one pregnancy. So in this study, they compiled um, you know, almost 17,000 births. And so when, when some of the other bigger studies that are done by obstetricians and researchers, when they looked at home birth, they're not only looking at planned birth, planned home birth, but they're also looking at unplanned birth, unassisted birth, births that should have, that may have happened at home accidentally, but should have happened in the hospital. And they're also looking at higher risk births. Um, so when you look at low risk women with a singleton pregnancy, you know, look at that cohort that planned a birth at home with a trained home birth provider versus the same population in a hospital setting. Um, the level of or the numbers of babies, um, infant mortality or neonatal mortality and maternal mortality are virtually the same. But what the big difference is that other outcomes like third and fourth degree lacerations, the use of epidurals, vacuum extraction, C-sections, other morbidities to babies and moms are drastically lower in the home birth cohort. So you're pretty much getting the same number of babies that will not make it, like maybe will you know, be a stillbirth um, or you know, die in that early infancy, early um, neonatal time. Those two groups are the same whether you birth in the hospital or at home, but you know the outcomes for women and babies overall are much better in the home birth group. So in the home birth group, I'm just going to turn my page here. Um, uh, in that in that sort of that study that I told you about, this almost 17,000 um, planned home births with a attendant that's a trained certified professional midwife, 93% of those women gave birth like a normal spontaneous vaginal birth. Um, only 1.2% of them were an assisted vaginal birth, so that means either vacuum or forcep. And midwives don't do that at home, so that would have been a planned home birth that then transferred to the hospital, then that baby needed some help coming out either with a vacuum or forcep. But only 1.2% of those babies um, needed any assistance. And then the C-section rate for that, you know, those 17,000 women that they tracked was 5% in the home birth group. And obviously the C-sections are not happening at home. This would have been a labor that would have transported to the hospital because it was long, or the mother requested epidural or requested, requested transport for, you know, medications. Um, so a 5% C-section rate. I mean, that's pretty darn low when our national average C-section rate is over 30%. And in some states, like New Jersey, I think it's over 50% of women mm -hmm. are giving birth mm -hmm. by C-section. So, What are the problems with C-sections that you, that you see? Well, A, <laughs> it's major abdominal surgery. So it's just a long recovery for a mom or a person who's giving birth um, versus a vaginal birth. Um, the blood loss during a c-section it's always going to be what we consider a hemorrhage so delayed healing because you're dealing with essentially a pretty large blood loss and then there's other complications you know you can nick the, the surgeon can nick the bladder nick the um, bowel um, infection rates because you're you know cutting through many layers of the body um, 
so th those are just the, sur the complications with surgery. So healing from it, um, it delays the infant-mother bond. Um, very few babies are getting immediate skin-to-skin -skin, um, contact during a surgical birth. Some are in our community and in some communities. Some surgeons are placing the baby right on the mother's chest during a surgery, but it's, that's pretty uncommon. But it is starting to happen. They're called family-centered cesareans, and there's groups of people in our community that are working towards that. Um, but most surgically born babies are, you know, their cord is cut immediately, they're removed to an, a warmer, um, and then they're dried and measured and weighed, and then they come to the mother. Um, there's the whole thing about the microbiome, too. So a baby that's not birthed vaginally coming through the mother's, the microbiome of her vagina, um, you know, there's still, you know, lots of studies that are not conclusive at this point, but they know that C-section babies have higher rates of asthma and allergies and um, they think diabetes and obesity and so the gut, the connection to the gut and the microbiome is, is something that we're all still learning lots about and babies who are born by C-section miss that. Um, the other thing is, you know, lots of C-section babies, you know, don't breathe well right away. Their lungs are full of fluid and so if there's any breathing difficulties, the delay with skin to skin and the initiation of breastfeeding is delayed even longer because they need assistance with respirations. Um, so it might be mean they're on a CPAP machine or a ventilator or, you know, something that is helping their lungs get clear versus a baby who's squeezed through the vaginal canal and their lungs are cleared of fluid right away. Um, so those are just the immediate what happens during a C-section. And then there's the risk to the mother for subsequent births. So a mother who doesn't want to limit how many children she has, and really in America not many families are 10, 12, 13 kids, but some are. And the risks of, um, you know, that many surgeries on a uterus, so there's lots of evidence that suggests um, that placenta implantation abnormalities happen at a much higher rate after subsequent surgeries. So if the placenta implants over a scar, there can be grave consequences to the mother for that placenta not releasing, you know, during the next um, birth. And so there's something called placenta accreta or percreta where the placenta, because of the scarring in the uterus, um, it actually grows through the layers of muscle of the uterus, and so that can be a catastrophic and devastating um, effect from many C-sections, where the mother might lose her uterus or even lose her life um, from those complications. Mm -hmm. So really best to avoid a C-section at all costs, if possible, especially if you're planning, if you don't want to limit the number of children that you welcome into your family. Mm -hmm. So many families are only having one or two or three kids and that many C-sections, you know, lots of people have all their kids by C-sections. But if you're a, a person or a woman or a family that don't want to limit your childbearing options, um, it's really important for many of those communities, the Plain communities, the Amish communities, the Orthodox Jewish communities, the um, very Catholic communities, they don't want to limit their childbearing capacity. They don't use birth control and they might have five or six or eight kids or ten kids. And um, to, ha to have an initial C-section with baby one and then a repeat one with baby two and then possibly, you know,
baby five, six, seven, and 10, 11, 12, that could be really devastating to the mother. So, um, so yes, home birth is safe. It's safe when a pregnancy is normal and when the mother is low risk. Mm -hmm. so, so what makes a woman be low risk? So a healthy, a healthy person. And um, some people would, you know, um, put age into that category, and I don't as a home birth midwife. I look at the lifestyle of that woman and that family. So what does she eat? How does she move her body? How does she care of her relationships? Um, so in our standard of care, which is a document that I follow very closely as a licensed provider, um, you know, I can't care for a woman that has liver disease. I can't care for someone who is a type 1 diabetic and depends on insulin to process her sugars. I can't care for someone who has a blood clotting disorder or who has a seizure disorder. So there's a list of things that would put someone in a higher risk category. And I can't care for them because they're not low risk. There's complications that, occur that can occur during pregnancy and birth that are just not suitable for the home environment. So, number one, you just have to be healthy and low risk. Mm -hmm. And really, most childbearing women are healthy and low risk. Most childbearing people are, you know, they're young, they haven't had a whole lot of life behind them to have a lot of health concerns, but some people do, and mm -hmm. it, you know, there are situations in which, um, you know, an obstetrician or a perinatologist or a maternal fetal medicine doctor and a hospital birth would be the safest option. So we want to kind of move on and talk about where do you think, you've talked a little bit about you know midwifery as a profession and mm -hmm. how you came to it, um, and as you've spent many years in midwifery, um, where do you see midwifery going at this point? Yeah, I feel really blessed to have landed in the Minnesota um, Twin City area where we've had such amazing, strong advocates for normal birth in our community. Not only midwives that have been practicing many, 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 many more years than I have, but a really rich community of doulas and childbirth educators and body workers who are so passionate about supporting the childbearing year that um, we are so blessed. I mean, there I happen to be the treasurer of um, the Minnesota Council of certified professional midwives and so I sort of um, manage their membership list and I know that we have like 60 members um, so, so 60 either students or certified professional midwives or certified nurse midwives um, just in our small community and then there's a whole community of certified nurse midwives so the ACNM the American what does it stand for? Nurse midwife? AC um, American College. <laughs> College of Certified Nurse Midwives. Yeah, yep. thank you. <laughs> Since I'm not one of those, that didn't come to me right away. Um, you know, I think there's about 100 um, certified nurse midwives in our community, many, many of whom support um, physiological normal birth and really do support out-of-hospital birth. Um, we have some really great thriving birth centers in our community in the last five years that are doing great and doing really fantastic work. Um, so where is it going? Um, I hope that um, we really flip the table and we, you know, at some point in our, in our national conversation about midwifery and in Minnesota, the number of births that midwives are attending 
is pretty small in Minnesota. It's probably 10% of certified nurse midwives are attending births, or certified nurse midwives are attending about 10% of the total number of births in the country. The number of babies born at home with a planned attendant is in Minnesota less than 2%. In some states it's higher, but it's still. Like it's a, it's a small number. So where would I like midwifery to go? I would like the tables to be turned. I would like there to be 80% of babies born to, into the hands of midwives at home and in the hospital. And 10% of the mid, or 10 to 20% of the babies born, you know, into obstetricians or by C-section because those women need a higher level of care. You don't need an obstetrician and a surgeon to attend a healthy, low-risk pregnancy. And so how does that compare to the rest of the world? Well, Renu, you just had a statistic that you floated off your tongue. In many countries, it's the opposite. Um, and it. Yeah, if I'm not mistaken, I've heard that about 85% of all births around the world are attended by midwives because birth is a normal event. Mm -hmm. But for some reason here, we kind of treat it pathologically instead of physiologically. Yeah. So um, effectively treating it like a disease, but... I mean, I feel it's the one area of medicine where you're going to the hospital without a problem, mm -hmm. but for something that could happen totally normally yeah, and should. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think our, I mean, our culture feeds that, our media, our television shows, mm -hmm. our, you know, it just feeds the fear of birth. And mm -hmm. then when there's fear, there's, you know, you get a disruption in the hormones of labor and those things don't happen at home. You know, when a woman mm -hmm. or a person and a family, when they stay in their home environment, there isn't the fear-pain cycle that mm -hmm. is common when you leave your home in a state of vulnerability and change and transformation. So when you show up at a hospital and you see a stranger and you see people in uniform and you're subjected to tests and procedures that are maybe not of your choosing and you're very open and vulnerable, you're automatically disrupting the hormones of labor and birth. And so when you choose home birth, which is what I specialize in, um, you know, I come into a family's home. I'm an invited guest. I don't, um, you know, I come in quietly. I've been there before. They know me well. They've had probably 10 to 15 prenatal visits with me. Mm -hmm. And how long are your prenatal visits? <laughs> we schedule a full hour um, to get to know families. And we really like to meet families at the beginning of their pregnancy, but sometimes people transfer care later in pregnancy. But we have the gift of time. And with that gift of time, we build deep, trusting, loving relationships with. Mm -hmm. It's really hard to attend a birth of somebody that you don't really love and trust. And when I am attending the births of the families that have elicited my help, I do love them deeply by the time I'm attending their birth. I really do. Mm -hmm. I can say that and look in their eyes and just say, I love you. Mm -hmm. And I know you can do this. And this is going to be hard. And this is going to be amazing. And I can't promise you your baby will be born at home, but 90% of the time it will. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and mm -hmm. um, it's really a miraculous experience. Mm -hmm. So you've talked a lot about the physical benefits of natural births. What have you witnessed in your experience are the emotional or spiritual benefits of a natural birth. Yeah, so um, a woman or a person giving birth um, without medication and without separation from their baby um, at the time of birth has the highest or the largest amount of oxytocin 
sort of like pumping through their veins than they will at any other and time. And what is oxytocin? In their life. <laughs> so oxytocin is the love hormone, and it's the hormone that initiates labor. It's the hormone that you have when you orgasm, when you share a meal with friends, when you look into someone's eyes and tell them you love them. That is the hormone at work. And that hormone has to be at really high levels in labor. And then once your baby is born, you know, your oxytocin levels are through the roof and in just the most wonderful way. Um, and it happens in the hospital, it happens at home, it happens in birth centers. And women and people feel empowered by that. It's a, it's a total high. If you've attended births, I mean, I've been attending births for about 20 years and it's been a couple weeks since the last birth I was at and I'm feeling really antsy like I you have know, three babies lined up right now and I can't wait until the next baby comes because I, I get fed by that. Like that's a big part of my love of this work is that um, so, you know, a person giving birth, it you know, if you give birth naturally without medications and if you don't have separation from your baby, um, you have the highest oxytocin surge you will ever have in your life. And that is just a life-changing event, absolutely. Um, it's just a lot of, it's just a, an empowering, transformative time. Mm -hmm. yeah. So what does attending birth give you? Well, definitely an <laughs> oxytocin hit. <laughs> um, and I, you know, I grew up in a family where women were really revered and, you know, I sat at my mom's knee with my aunties around me and I was just sort of fed a feminist menu of, of women being empowered and um, I feel like I can do that. The work I do is, is, really a fem is really feminist work. It, you know, it's empowering women to, to come into their power and when women give birth it is just the most amazing thing and they feel it, you know, people feel it. It's, you just can't get beyond it. So witnessing that, you know, on a day-to-day -day basis or week-to-week -week basis, you know, witnessing people having that power and knowing that they grew this baby and that they nurtured this baby and that they labored and pushed this baby out of their bodies and just bearing witness to that is, there's nothing like it. Mm. It's a holy sacred thing and it's, uh, it's just beautiful work. What are some qualities of an exceptional midwife? Oh, there are a lot. I think probably the biggest one would be patience. Um, birth is long, especially for a first-time birthing person. Um, usually, not always. Um, and I think patience is an exceptional skill to have. Sitting on your hands and not doing and not feeling like you have to do something um, as long as the mother is eating and drinking and the baby is tolerating labor, the midwife really doesn't have to do a lot. There's a little charting we have to do for legal reasons and to make sure that the story is told in the event we need to go to the hospital, that those people can sort of read the story and understand what's going on. I'd say patience is the biggest one. Um, certainly love and um, a kind heart. You know, birth isn't always easy. Um, sometimes it's really long and hard and scary and things can turn quickly at birth so certainly having skills to resuscitate a baby, um, to stop a hemorrhage quickly, to 
you know, make critical decisions to get that mother or that person to care quickly um, are skills. So sort of quick, um, critical decision-making skills are pretty key. Um, and then there's lots of little tips and tricks that you pick up along the way, but those are things that people can learn. Mm -hmm. yeah. What was a moment that you questioned yourself as a midwife? Yeah, there's lots. Um, I wrote down a few notes about this because I was reflecting on this today. Um, you know, birth is, as I just said, not always easy. It's not always swift and romantic and lovely and candles and scented lavender sashes. It, you know, um, I definitely question, um, and certainly as I get a little older in this work, um, being up multiple nights in a row, you know, um, is definitely hard and I'm not at the point where I'm thinking of retirement or changing my practice much but um, you know I can see maybe in 10 years like yeah I'll definitely be slowing down um, there's definitely questioned at times I've questioned um, midwifery and myself as a midwife when I've committed myself to a family uh, to be their attendant and I do work in a partnership so um, I feel good about that that's a nice thing um, where you know midwifery gets in the way of my own life so family birthdays and I can think of weddings I've missed and my husband's 40th birthday I missed and my own children's you know important events um, you know, being in a partnership helps that a little bit, and I know that there are groups of midwives in the Twin Cities that are trying to move away from, you know, the mid, you know, one midwife being the only person that can be in that birth because that's not a sustainable model um, for midwifery. So certainly, you know, when you hear women say things like, "Oh my gosh, I couldn't have done that without you," and I always shake my head and say, "Oh yes, you could have." and you did, and you would have done it whether it was me attending you or another midwife or my colleague or my partner. Because birth is really, the power is in the birthing person and she or he need to know that. And, um, and so, you know, I think when, when someone has a really empowering birth, they tend to, they heap those accolades onto the attendant and that's really, really not fair. <laughs> <laughs> I try and discourage people from doing that because, I mean, I did it to my own midwife too, you know, when I had a really lovely, empowering birth. I was like, I thanked her. I brought her a gift. It was like, thank you so much. And what she really did was empower me to birth my baby. And and I do see that in a different light now that I'm an attendant. Um, so, but yeah, definitely, you know, um, long nights. And the other thing about a small practice is that, you know, unless I really take a chunk of time off, like I'm always on call. You know, like right now I have my bag packed, my car's full of my birth stuff, I have to bring certain bags in at night when it's cold out, I, you know, my medications, my electronic things, like they can't stay in the car all night. And I just, you know, some some women birth really quickly. Some people have fast labors. And so I could get a call right now and, you know, be catching a baby in an hour. And so to always live your life, you know, as if you might have to dash out the door and 
drive across town in rain and sleet and snow <laughs> to help someone birth their baby, you know, that's a, that's a pretty heavy load to carry all the time. So I think the burnout rate for midwives is pretty high, um, especially with that, you know, consistent on-call status. Um, so those are, you know, there's definitely times I've questioned you know, my work as a midwife. And certainly there are hard births. There's births that even though the mom was low risk and the baby was healthy and the pregnancy was normal, that things changed quickly in labor. And it was literally life or death. And, you know, I, my practice has been very fortunate. We haven't had a fetal loss or a maternal loss. I hope we never do. But um, those things can happen. And um, I think it's really hard for those midwives who have those situations to have to really re-examine, you know, what happened and, yeah. Okay. Can you walk us through what home birth looks and feels like? Yeah. I mean, most of the time home birth is, it's really dreamy. <laughs> so, as I said before, we have deep and usually pretty long and loving and trusting relationships with families we serve. So we do a home visit at about 36 weeks where we logistically talk about water birth tub setup and who's going to be there and what the emergency transport plan is and where are the papers for that, where are your birth supplies and kind of go through the kit and um, so all of that's in place. Um, in Minnesota, it's safe to have your baby between 37 and 42 weeks. So the home visit's always at between 36 and 37, and any time after that, you know, we're prepared to show up and be the invited guests at this home birth. So usually by the time I get there, if it's a first-time birthing person and um, they've hired a doula, usually the doula will be there first. Um, a doula is a trained, birth attendant that um, provides emotional and physical comfort measures in labor. Um, doulas are fantastic. I love doulas. I worked as a doula for many years before I became a midwife. Um, I love when home birth families have a doula because I know that we just will have extra support and love and care at that birth. So sometimes I arrive in active labor. The doula's maybe been there for a while, maybe not that long. I usually arrive and it's usually pretty quiet and dark. Um, a lot of women do labor at night and so it's not uncommon to you know get that birth call at two or three or five in the morning when labor's been going on maybe the day before and I'm called and it's active labor. Um, so it's usually pretty cozy. Um, most people choose to birth in pretty low light might be some candles going. Um, most people who are birthing don't want bright lights and, you know, um, lots of stimulus. Sometimes there's some soft music playing, sometimes not. Um, what I and my partner do when we first arrive at a birth is um, just quietly let ourselves in the house and just take a deep breath. We wash our hands and just observe what's happening. Um, we usually take out some of our equipment to do an initial assessment of mother and baby, or birthing person and baby. So we're taking a blood pressure and a temperature and um, listening to the heart tones. And we start a chart on her, start a labor flow, and um, you know, if things are kind of trucking along, we're helping set up a birth tub if that's not already done, or filling the birth tub. And it is really not a misnomer that we are literally carrying water at birth. <laughs> 
Most home hot water heaters will not fill up a birth tub in one filling. So very often if the birth is happening, it's kind of trucking along, we are boiling water and hauling it to the birth tub. <laughs> that happens a lot. I would say the biggest reason why a second time birthing person doesn't have a water birth, if she, if she or he wants one, is because the birth happened too quickly and there wasn't enough water in the tub. <laughs> so we literally are boiling and carrying water. Um, you know, we're just making sure that the birthing person is eating and drinking and voiding and, um, you know, we try not to ask too many questions. We don't want to um, sort of fire up that prefrontal cortex of the birthing person's brain. We want um, her to stay in that really intuitive, in um, primitive brain function where it's hormonal and um, the person's usually pretty unaware of time and space. They may recognize that we've come, but they're not engaging in conversation because it really takes them out of the hormones of birth. So we try not to ask a lot of questions. If we need to, we'll ask the partner or the doula. Um, and as birth becomes, it, it's apparent to us that the birth is becoming more imminent, you know, maybe the birthing person's feeling some urge to push, you know, then we're making sure that we're completely set up, that we have our medications drawn up and by our side, that our birth tray is ready to go, that our resuscitation equipment is in working order, and um, we have a resuscitation board and <clears throat> a bag and mask and um, the things we need for an infant resuscitation. Um, do, I do recall one story, either you or your midwifery partner told me how there was a home birth father who was a little anxious about it being a home birth and he said when you and Claire walked in with all your bags of gear mm -hmm. he relaxed yeah. <laughs> it's like oh they've got stuff like they have things we have we'll stuff be okay <laughs> we have bags of stuff bags of stuff what are in some of your bags of stuff yeah well i have three bags i bring into a birth along with my purse which always contains my computer which is where i chart um, I have one bag of resuscitation things, so it's got oxygen, bag and mask, tubing for an infant mask and uh, an adult mask. It has a resuscitation board and something called an LMA, a laryngeal mask airway. Um, it's got a neck roll so the baby's in the right position. What else is in there? A couple um, artificial airways. Um, that's everything in that bag and then I have my main birth bag which has my birth tray and in my birth tray are non-sterile gloves, sterile gloves, an amni hook which is something that's used for breaking the bag of water but I have <laughs> rarely 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 ever done that but I always have one in case I need it. Um, I have sterile instruments for cutting the cord and or um, performing the episiotomy which is a a cut between on the perineum between the vagina and anus and sadly or <laughs> happily I've never done one of those um, but I have instruments to do it if I needed to um, I carry medications to stop a hemorrhage and I carry some homeopathics I carry rescue remedy and something to clamp the cord really quickly so a big cord clamp although I prefer to use a cord band which is a more leisurely way to do it but if I need to do it quickly I have a cord clamp and some sterile syringes and needles to administer the medications for hemorrhaging and I think that's it on the birth tray and then what's in the bigger bag are you know instruments and things to suture a perineum if we need to do that so lidocaine and suturing equipment 
sutures and suturing instruments. <clears throat> um, lots of homeopathic and herbs, which I often use, catheters for helping a mother artificially empty her bladder or his bladder, if need be. Um, again, many of these things I rarely use. A sharps container for safely disposing of um, sharp needles and um, things like that. And then extra medications of all the things I carry in the birth tray. So extra Pitocin and Methogen and Cytotec and then vitamin K and eye ointment, um, lidocaine. So I have a little med bag and then I have extra gloves and extra cord clamps and yeah. Mm -hmm. And then my, so that's my main birth bag. And then I have a prenatal bag, which is everything I need to use during a prenatal visit or a postpartum visit. So that's got fetoscopes. Dopplers, blood pressure cuffs, various sizes of all those things. Um, ways of determining jaundice, I have blood draw equipment if I need to draw cord blood or if I need to draw blood for bilirubin testing of the baby, um, swabs for GBS testing, so lab supplies, forms <laughs> for all those things. Um, lots of informed consent documents. I have a backup paper chart in case I don't have internet or the internet's down and I can't access my online charting. Um, I have lab forms and uh, toothbrush and toothpaste for my own use. <laughs> I get a little energy drink for those long nights. Lots of little things. Yeah. Flashlights. So is not just this woo-woo sort of... Home birth midwives come into the house and chant. Like, no. You're prepared. You I've never chanted at a birth, although I wouldn't be opposed to doing that. No, we are trained to handle emergencies if we need to. So, yeah, it usually home births are pretty dreamy, and there's usually always a tub. Um, I'm going to attend a birth this month or next month of um, a third-time mom who is choosing not to have a tub, which is weird to me, but I'm like, okay, less work for me to you know, take down the tub. She dispersed quickly and she doesn't want to be bothered. But I would say like 99% of the families we work with want access to a tub, whether for labor and or birth. Um, yeah, once the baby's born, it's up on the birthing person. Uh, we never separate the baby unless it's really an emergency and we're transporting the baby. So the baby stays skin to skin. Um, the cord is not cut or clamped usually until well after the placenta is birthed. Um, and, you know, we ceremoniously do it. Usually the partner or an older sibling will cut the cord. Um, yeah, the, the postpartum time is very sweet. It's actually the time in the birth that I feel like is the most work for me and my partner. You know, because there's pretty regular checks of both mom and baby. Um, you know, there's the birth of the placenta, which a lot of people feel like once the baby's born, the birth is done. And it's true, the birth of the baby is done, but it's the, before the placenta comes and the bleeding is controlled, that is the riskiest time of birth for the mother. And so it's the time that I feel I'm at my most alert and most, you know, you're just watching everything. You're assessing a brand new baby. Is he or she breathing normally? Is the temperature stable? Is the baby's color good? Is the heart rate normal? Mm -hmm. How do the lungs sound? But you're also like, the birth is not done. The placenta is inside still, and the mother's at her biggest risk for a hemorrhage. So you're really trying to stay calm. You're trying to 
you know, keep the hormones very, very, um, you know, we, we, we have a rule in our practice that whoever's in the room when the baby is born has to stay there and then no one new can come in the room and there can be no social media, no phone calls, no Skype visits until the placenta has been birthed and bleeding is controlled. Mm -hmm. One of the worst hemorrhages I saw as a new midwife was, um, was a second baby and um, was a third baby no it was a second baby the first baby was a young boy I think he was 12 and there was a whole bunch of people in the living room there was probably five people a mother-in-law and some friends and uh, someone to watch the older child and this older kid and they could hear that the baby arrived it was a nice healthy scream and the baby was lusty and beautiful and while we were waiting for the placenta to arrive, you know, this burst of energy came into the room. And then there was a phone call, and the mother was completely distracted from finishing the birth. And even though I had attended lots of births as a student, you know, it just, you know, it didn't occur to me that this was really a disruptive thing that was happening. But she started hemorrhaging. And it was a bad hemorrhage. Like, we didn't transport to the hospital. She, we controlled it quickly and swiftly, but she lost way more blood than she should have. And I believe the main reason why she did that was because she was completely taken out of her birth hormones um, with attending to and greeting these people who were coming in with love and excitement, but she had not birthed the placenta yet. So that birth was instructive for me. <laughs> we set some ground rules mm -hmm. of keeping the energy and the hormones um, for birth and the placenta mm -hmm. the same. Yeah, um, I can really relate to that. I think having started out seeing birth from the perspective of your practice mm -hmm. and attending five home births with you to start out my experience with birth and now I'm kind of transitioning more into doula work as in hospitals and that hour feels mm -hmm. so sacred in home birth and mm -hmm. I'm just kind of shocked moving to the hospital with like how many procedures they're doing and all the doctors coming in and out and they're taking the baby to do mm -hmm. this or that mm -hmm. and it feels so distracted and yeah. the juxtaposition between you know what I started out seeing and the busyness of hospitals like it just it feels like oh they're not it's not protecting yeah that time yeah yeah, the first hour after birth, although my partner and I are extremely alert and attentive to the safe birth of the placenta and the mother, you know, not losing more blood than she needs to, and the baby being skin to skin, um, you know, so we're right there until the placenta is born and her uterus is firm and she's not bleeding. We are right by her bedside um, doing frequent checks on baby and mom. Once the placenta is born, and bleeding is controlled. We're, you know, still doing checks obviously every 10 to 15 minutes, but, you know, we can take a deeper breath and then start thinking about emptying the tub and, um, you know, examining the placenta and thinking about her perineum and making herbs for postpartum care. And, you know, there's just a lot of work that happens after the birth. So minimum, we are at a birth for three hours after the birth of the baby. That was would be the shortest amount of time that we would stay at the house. Quite often it's longer because um, there's just more to do or the baby doesn't transition as quickly or there's, you know, something happens and you just need to be there longer.
Yeah, home birth sounds really, really lovely and dreamy. Um, and I love the emphasis on caring for the mom. I think in some of the hospital births I've seen, um, most of the attention goes on the baby as soon as the baby's out. Right. And I see the mom um, kind of ignored. And yeah. so as the doula, I, I'm always very vigilantly keeping um, my attention on the mom and not getting yeah. distracted by the mm -hmm. baby um, in that process. And they kind of are the same thing. The yeah. mom and the baby, they're so connected. Like there's, mm -hmm. that's, they're not so separate yet. Yeah, and that's true. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's fitting, fitting that a midwife, the actual word means with women. With women, yeah. right, mm -hmm. yeah. Um, can I ask you to share uh, an empowering quote about birth? Do you yeah, have? Yeah, I do. I um, was just reminded as I was preparing for this podcast of a woman who um, my partner and I helped um, probably six or seven years ago now. Um, she had had her first baby in the hospital and she pretty much described it as a shit show. She, you know, had a lot done to her. She didn't have a C-section, but she felt extremely disempowered and disrespected and um, I don't remember the specifics of the birth I mean it was a first baby it was a long labor and um, she came to us partway through <clears throat> her care she had been planning actually to have her baby at a birth center and when the birth center found out that she was uh, hepatitis C positive um, they declined to care for her anymore and so they have some regulations and I'm not sure it was, you know, anyway, but we, we took her on and we just took extra precautions, mostly for ourselves, um, because she was hep C positive, but she had, you know, a pretty lovely pregnancy, pretty low risk, despite, you know, that she didn't have any health concerns besides her hep C carrier. And, um, after the birth, she had a, she had a pretty fast birth. <laughs> I remember getting there. It was Thanksgiving. Um, it was sort of after dinner on Thanksgiving, and yeah, my partner and I arrived, and birth was just happening. Like she was, she was deep in the throes of labor. And afterwards, she wrote this quote, and um, there's a little bit of a typo in it, so I'm just gonna bumble through it. Um, she actually wrote it for a series that I did for the Childbirth Collective um, for a blog post, and it was, you know, what did it mean to for you to choose home birth and um, she wrote this for that but since she was my client it's on my website what did it mean for me to choose to birth my baby at home simply home birth gave me something I did not even realize had been taken away home birth was a gift beyond imagining as a woman as a mother and as a human being it is an awesome gift in every respect to the whole family mending one mother at a time of all the losses humanity suffers. Home birth is a deep healing connection in a culture bent on disconnecting us from our souls, ourselves, and each other. That is the gift that home birth was to me and my family. Thank you so much, Emmy. This has been such an honor to hear your story and to explore midwifery with you. Yeah, it's been super enlightening. And it's really happy to have you on this podcast. Well, thanks for having me. It's really fun to talk about. I never get tired of talking about midwifery. It's a, it's a gift. Thank you. You are safe here. And you are loved.
Cause 